Welcome to the Unusual Creatures Podcast, a podcast about the unusual creatures that fall in love, stay, stray, come back, and sometimes leave this insane business of artistry and show. Against all odds, our guests have persevered and told stories using their mediums of choice. Now, these are their stories and our stories. The incredible people who you might know by sight, whose names you may not recognize, whose work you've definitely experienced or will one day experience. Art is a ripple effect, and these artists' creativity makes a lasting impact. Let's hear more. Good morning, good evening, and good night. My name is Jenny Gomez. And I'm Thomas Dane. And this is the Unusual Creatures Podcast. What week are we on? How how far in are we? Look at us. Look at us moving along, shaking and doing things, talking to it's, people. I love it. It's unbelievable. How are you feeling today, Tom? I'm good. I'm good. I'm 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 refreshed. I had a, a good night's sleep. Um, the world is still on fire, but you know it's fine. I'll just have a margarita and watch. So <laughs> absolutely, just pull up and grab the popcorn. I've been going back to the gym, which has been crazy. So I'm feeling Ooh. like endorphin high. Yeah, you Go know when you start time. going back to doing something like you're trying to start a new habit, and you're feeling really, really good, and you're like, I'm gonna do this every day. I'm in like the honeymoon phase still. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Soon that's gonna be like you know I hate you and and, and like this is over and I want all the, all the cash. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, the quitting phase is inevitable. On to why we're here. Tom, who are we talking to today? This week, we have Alan Herrera, uh, who is, uh, <laughs> do you like how I did that? Um, Alan is brilliant. Uh, that's one of the easiest ways to put it. Alan is a writer and a journalist and a fancy schmancy pants um, editor. And uh, he, I met Alan years ago in New York and we both were, uh, he actually was my boss for a bit. He got me my job at the social edge and then. No um, kidding. Yeah. 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 And then he was like, I don't want to edit anymore. It's driving me crazy. And he went back to more freelance writing and now he's one of my colleagues there. And um, he has all these different titles and all these different journalistic places, which we'll get into and invest here from his own lips. So um, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Alan Herrera. Hello, Alan. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's really great. This will be fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. It's such a pleasure. And yeah, Tom and I go way back. And it's just like really funny how, you know, I, I mean, it's great when you're when you're just like good friends with somebody and you just stay in each other's lives. And then you end up with like cool little opportunities like this one that just land in your lap. So well, thank you. Thank you for doing it. I know that you're you're a busy man. And I, I wanted to talk to you. I thought you would have a really fantastic perspective on art and and how art has the ability to mold someone and change someone for the better and and we'll get into all that um in a few minutes but tell us let's start at the beginning alan tell us who is alan herrera what are your origins my darling yes inquiring minds want to know <laughs> my origins <laughs> it sounds so mysterious so yes i mean tom is correct so i am a journalist and i am an editor so i'll just dive right into it. So I am currently the media platform manager for foreignpress.org, where I currently oversee coverage about press freedom and um, misinformation, threatening journalism, you know, the fourth estate at large. Uh, I'm also an executive officer on the board of the Association of Foreign Correspondents in the United States. That's AFC USA. Um, OMG. 
Yeah, yeah I was just like, yeah, I just I write. That's it. <laughs> That's my resume. <laughs> yeah. So I've been so I've been a, an executive uh, officer for a while. Um, I served as the organization's general secretary during 2019 and 2020, and later as treasurer um, during 2021. Uh, I've written about domestic and international politics, as well as LGBTQ issues, culture and entertainment. Um, I originally wanted to be a film critic, but that's another, you know, field where there's no money. Hooray. We'll go into that. <laughs> um, yeah. All these, um, all these titles and you're still poor. It's like, I know, okay. <laughs> I know it's great. Yeah. So, um, let me see. So I, but, uh, getting back to like what Tom mentioned before about how, like I was his boss and everything. So I was previously an editor on, um, the actor and activist, George Takei. Yay. Star Trek, uh, George Takei's social media team. Um, so I specialized in breaking news and push progressive policy initiatives and I learned a fair amount about Star Trek, a show that I still have never seen. But I've been um, I've been a lifelong New Yorker. And like I said, I'm a big film buff and a voracious reader. And I hope to perhaps one day write the great American novel and not be poor, but get paid to talk about art, maybe. So, yeah. You had oh, you had your own film critic uh, site for a while, didn't you? I did. I ran a site. Oh, my God. Back when I, I started a blog back when I was, I think, 18 years old. And I ran that, I think, for like two or three years and just like made some money on the side with the like Google AdSense and whatnot. It was like, it feels so primitive and like chill and retro now. And nowadays, everybody's like on TikTok and crap like that. Well, well we, we were discussing um, the TikToks on a, a different episode and about actually, because it, it's a medium and uh, that I don't have a lot of understanding about, but it's, it's the new wave. And it's a new wave it, that is financially solvent too and now these people are just are raking in coin and it, and it is the more the, the more content the better you get the more it actually i guess becomes art but jenny knows but Je- i know you love your tiktoks i started out like my marketing career in social media content creation um i got sort of hooked into doing john leguizamo was one of my first like big clients and i helped him run his social media accounts from like just a sort of like again content creation perspective so i always try to stay on tap of like what's on what's going on in social media so I'm trying to stay hip as an old lady listening, like watching the TikToks, but I don't make any TikToks, but I do think it, it's a creative outlet that is, I'm curious to see where it evolves. Not like Facebook, which has turned into a dumpster fire. Oh yeah. Don't get me started on that. I mean, considering all the things that you cover as a journalist, I'm sure that like the misinformation on Facebook has to be a topic that you delve into quite often. That's a big part of it. That is a big yeah. part of it. Like, um, for example, I regularly read reports from organizations like um, the um, the com- the Committee to Protect Journalists (CPJ), right? Oh, cool. Yeah, and like for example, the amazing organization, just wonderful work. You know, just bringing attention to um, it, human rights violations. You know, against uh, journalists. Like for example, in Myanmar. You know, like in the last year, there was this big coup. And the military has been cracking down on journalists of anybody who's critical, you know, of the government. They've knocked out, you know, internet communications, all sorts of stuff like that. You know, it's horrible. And um, but looking looking at that and looking at, you know, like the, geno- you know, the genocide of the uh, Rohingya people and uh, everything that's happened in Myanmar over the last few years, there are plenty of reports that talk about how misinformation on Facebook, you know, and other social media platforms just helped 
um, stoke these uh, these tensions. They inflamed these tensions and you know and these hostilities. And it's certainly something that we see here in the United States as well. I mean, everything. Uh, I mean, just the uh, just the last election alone, right? So much misinformation and disinformation. To say nothing of 2016 in particular. I mean, I spent a lot of time covering um, 2016 and covering a lot of misinformation and disinformation constantly, um, you know, fact checking and like losing so much sleep and then constantly dealing with people who insisted that I was lying to them, you know, while I was, you know, doing the work to provide them the facts that they were so desperate for and that they claimed to want. So it's I have a very interesting relationship with how much like I love this field. I think it's an important field and it's a valuable field. But I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Look, I'm underpaid and I've been treated like crap before. And I think that it's, I think that any journalist who says otherwise is, you know, like they're, they're lying or like at least downplaying it. It is a tough field and many journalists have left. And I don't think that there's any reason to sugarcoat that. Yeah. And when you were back at the, I mean, even when you were doing um, the social edge and doing even and then, and the social edge was, there's so much pop, it's so, there's so much pop culture on that site. And it was a political, politically heavy site, but it wasn't like you're breaking story, of the Washington post or anything like that. Like you were, but you were still getting like daily death threats. Right. And then they have to like bring therapists into the office to like talk to you guys down from a ledge. Yeah, it was like I remember that um, I was getting like awful emails, you know, and death threats. I still get some even though I'm no longer <laughs> like even though I'm no longer the editor of the company. But um, the company did um, just make efforts, especially after 2016, to just try and give us uh, they emphasized, you know, for example, a lot of the services that were available to us via, you know, our health insurance that, you know, that we received at the time, we had these like fairly regular huddles where we just sort of vented and talked about how, <laughs> how awful everything was. Oh and, my gosh. Yeah, I know, you know, and like, and they tried, they tried, you know, I, I will give them that, you know, like they, they did try, like we were all just upset and tired and you know it was heartbreaking and like and this goes beyond you know like oh you know like oh I wanted Hillary Clinton to win or like anything like that it was about just what it meant you know what it meant for the country at large like what so many journalists people working at nudie at media outlets you know were saying when you have journalists when you have policymakers, when you have historians you know warning about the very frightening parallels between donald trump's ascendancy and obviously everything that came afterward which is honestly just i mean do you know how many historians i've spoken to in the last few years who are just like yeah we're just watching this play out like told you so you know <laughs> It's terrible. And I mean, it really gets to the heart of how historically intellectuals are just not listened to. They're just not. Why the arts, Alan? Like, why writing? Like, when when did this begin, this passion, this idea, this, like, I can do this, or I love to do this, or I need to do this? When and why? Like, with all the options as a brainiac, why this? <laughs> why? As a brainiac. Let me see. So the thing is, I actually, I will preface this by saying that, like, I never thought that I would end up in journalism. You know, it wasn't anything that I expected or anticipated. And that happened entirely by accident. And, you know, it is something that I'm good at and that I enjoy. And I'm happy to be in this field. But I'll start at the beginning. So my first love was always fiction. You know, fiction and poetry were always my first loves. Uh, also, movies, you know, film, like big, you know, big fan. And I was a performer and I still at my, at, at heart, I consider myself a performer. Like I sang, you know, for like 12 years, have been a, you know, a trainer. Wow. 
yeah, trained vocalist did, you know, I performed for Mayor Bloomberg and uh, Carolyn Kennedy. Like at one point I did work with um, City Center and MCC Youth Theater. It's, it's been an, you know, it's been an interesting life. But the thing is that like when it came to movies, just an example, and acting, you know, which I loved, I loved reading plays and reading scripts, reading screenplays, you know, all that stuff, Uh, really just understanding the mechanics of, you know, of writing a story, you know, learning structure, getting lost in beautiful, well-told stories. And I wanted to tell my own. So like, I spent a lot of time writing short stories growing up. I spent a lot of time, you know, like writing screenplays and plays. Like I wrote the most melodramatic, crappy play when I was like 16, but that was my baby. <laughs> like still going to have a life. You'll find a way. Yeah. Like I'm so proud of that thing. And I came across a copy a while ago and I was like, oh, that is not it. We're going to pretend that uh, that did not come out of my brain, even though it totally did. And I'm still very proud of it. But, but anyway, as you, sh- as you should be, because I think a lot of artists, I think one of our big thing is like we, we, we cast aside what we think is not perfect, but you did it. And what 16 year old can sit there and say they wrote a play? Not many. Yeah, so no, you know, it's true. It's true. Like that was that was my big one. It was called The Fallen. <laughs> At 16. <laughs> I know. What did I know about The Fallen? <laughs> what did that mean? But I wrote it. Um, I was very proud of it. I would spend like lunch periods just sitting with like my notebooks and just editing and everybody's like, look at that freaking nerd. And it's like, yeah, well, I'm doing something related to what I like to do for a living. So like jokes on you, Uh, you know, but like I do want to eventually, you know, get back into writing, you know, writing more fiction and everything else, because I fell into journalism um, because I just happened to meet, you know, George Takei and co at a random party. So I go and it's like, oh, my God, I'm like with George Takei's social media people and like it it was it was crazy for me it was I was the only person there who didn't you know who didn't know anybody and uh everybody really liked me and I liked them and then all of a sudden they were like hey do you want to write and then next thing you know like I was writing and then they just appointed me editor they just really took me under the under their wing and like George Takei took me under his wing and like I was wow you know, working, you know, under him closely and like being his voice on social media and everything. Then, you know, journalism just spiraled from there. I ended up getting acquainted with foreign correspondents who were like, uh, one of them in particular was like, oh, have you ever, you know, edited documents for like the Foreign Press Association or like the UN or anything like that? And I was like, "Uh, no, how do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) then I ended up doing that and then just things went on from there and I've built up a really you know cool and impressive resume and it's something that like I will say not that jobs you know are everything and I have many thoughts about this capitalist dystopian hellhole that you know that we all live in (laughs) quite a few thoughts but I am proud of, you know, of a lot of those accomplishments. But I also know that journalism is not forever for me. Certainly, I would like to continue to stay involved in this field. Like I, you know, advocate for news literacy uh, initiatives, you know, like that's a 
big thing about what I do to say nothing of like advocating on behalf of foreign journalists, uh, I sitting on a scholarship committee to give foreign journalists, you know, money so they can go to school in the United States. Like the Association of Foreign Correspondents awarded um, $30,000 in its first year, five foreign journalists from like different countries, Kenya, South Africa, like Bulgaria, if I remember correctly, um, just, you know, re- really cool stuff. But I want to eventually just get back into working on another novel or working on another play, you know, getting back on stage, you know, at some point or just creating material, you know, for other for other actors and other performers, because that's something that those are my roots. And, you know, it legitimately makes me happy. And it's what opened up storytelling and writing for me. And it makes me happier more than anything in the world. Certainly, I've I appreciate what this field has done for me. Like it's made me a very good, um, you know, journalistic writer. Journalistic writing is totally different, of course, from like writing fiction, short stories, anything like that. Um, I'm much I'm a much better um, academic writer. I've learned how to be uh, much more concise, because when you read and fall in love with uh, Jane Austen as a child, you start to mimic her and she wasn't very <laughs> concise. <laughs> her and, her Shakespeare both. Yeah. 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 And can you, can you extrapolate on that a little bit, Alan? What makes there, there's certainly, I think there's certainly some art to journalism and I think you have to be, I think as a journalist, you're either in love with the investigative sort of research chase, or you're in love with the writing and the storytelling. I found that the journalists that I've met in my life, it's like, they're either like, I really want to be involved in the news or like, I just really want an outlet to write. And this is my outlet. Can you extrapolate for the audience? Like, what do you find different about like Jane Austen versus being a journalist? Because some people <laughs> might not know. <laughs> sure. um, and the artistry of journalism. Sure. Uh, All right. So part of being, you know, part of being a good uh, writer is, of course, being able to take a complicated issue, you know, and being able to get to the most important points and explain them um, and present them, you know, in a way that people are uh, the layperson. They need to come away more informed. A journalist's responsibility is to citizens, right, to citizens who read the news. And one of the reasons why, you know, a journalist's job is so important is because if you keep the people informed, then they will be, to repeat this word, right, they will be uh, more informed and more capable of making decisions that lend themselves to good governance, such as like voting, you know, for people who will, you know, give them the, the, the policies, right, that they that they need to live their lives, you know, more comfortably, more successfully, um, etc. So good journalism, you know, lends itself to good citizenry and, you know, good governance. And you do need to be concise, you know, like brevity is certainly important. Uh, at the same time, there is something to be said about, you know, the beauty of like, uh, a really wonderfully well investigated and like engrossing, um, piece of long form journalism. Like I'm one of those people, like if it's like, look, there's this expose and it's like 15,000 words and it's in the New Yorker or whatever. I'm like, yes, give it to me. I want to read it. Like, oh it's my God, same. Yes. Cause it's like, it's, I'm sure that it's fascinating and that it will take me on a journey. And like that journey is fascinating because let's say you're an investigative journalist and you're of course, you know, working on all this stuff and you're piecing all of this stuff together for what will eventually, you know, become um, an article. You are being a storyteller. You know, you're noting all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you have to do your due diligence, obviously, you know, like you need to have um, proper sources. You have to be uh, safe, you know, because journalism isn't exactly safe, depending on, um, you know, what regions of uh, the the world, you know, you might you might happen to be in. Um, 
Well, anyway, I mean, Ronan Farrow was followed by Harvey Weinstein's henchmen. Absolutely. While posting, putting that expose together everywhere. That's a great example. Yeah, I mean, like, journalism is a huge threat to, you know, to powerful people. And that's why they make, they spend so much of their time and effort, you know, undermining. Now, when it comes to, like, let's say, writing fiction, you know, you're also a storyteller. If you're a poet, you know, you're also a storyteller. But you're not necessarily confined to, um, you know, certain rules, like journalism goes by um, certain principles, for example, um, verification, independence, and accountability. And language, for example, has to be, um, you know, uh, presented neutral, there's this um, principle of fair reporting, and fair reporting also means um, fair play, right? Now, there is a difference between, I should um, stress this, apps for the sake of this conversation, there is a difference between, you know, fairness and balance. Because fairness, for example, gives somebody in a, you know, somebody featured in a story and an actor, so to speak, who's being chronicled in this story, it gives them the opportunity to respond to like, let's say negative charges. And balance, of course, is, you know, yes, you know, you get different, you know, different voices and different sides presented, you know, in a story like that obviously makes sense. But we have to be careful and make sure that that in pursuit of like, let's say, balance, that we don't end up creating a false equivalency, because then that wouldn't be fair. It's like with, um, you know, the consensus on climate change, we know that, you know, that the climate is changing, we know that um, human beings are, are, you know, uh, largely responsible for why climate change has worsened, you know, over the years, over the decades, etc. But it would not be right to get, let's say, some random average Joe on a podcast or something yelling, you know, alongside um, a noted uh, climate scientist about how, you know, climate change isn't real, because that's just wrong. You know, that goes against the consensus of like 99% of scientists. Another way to explain this, I would say is this principle was explained to me, right, in another way, in particular, where they said, you know, if it's, uh, if somebody says it's raining outside, then it's your responsibility, right, to like open the window, stick your hand outside and see if it's raining. It is not your responsibility to, you know, to get somebody to uh, get a quote, you know, in your story who will say, oh, it's not raining, it's sunny, even though it's clearly raining. So it's been really interesting seeing how issues of fairness and balance have, you know, they've become uh, huge talking points, you know, over the last few years. But I think that there is definitely an inherent misunderstanding of like what that means. And that means uh, not just for, you know, the people who read the news, but certainly how the news is produced. Yeah, that's super fascinating, Alan. I could like sit here and listen to you talk about this for days. You know, my friends are always saying that like, oh, you should you should be a lecturer or something. And like, I would love to be a professor. I think I would have a blast at it. You touched a little bit on I want to I want to go back to because you said you sort of stumbled into journalism, but it's been but it's but it sounds like it's been a fascinating journey but that your heart really lies in being a poet and a fiction writer. How do you balance sort of having to build a career out of writing? I mean, you're still writing, which is, which is, there's so much beauty in that. And like the passion and love for like that thing that you really want to do. Interestingly enough, I, I felt very lost for, you know, for a few years. I think Tom knows. <clears throat> I went through a period 
where I was just really upset and really unhappy. And just this field, I'm not going to lie to you, like there have been times when like this field has just bothered me. It's made me angry. You know, uh, certainly, of course, like the political climate is just no fun. It's not fun being a journalist. You know, it's not fun sitting and like poking through the same 10 facts about Donald Trump, you know, for the last, you know, five years, for example, and continuing to write articles about, you know, about this stuff. It's, it's exhausting. It is mentally exhausting. But I had to figure out how to, I guess, really take care of myself, right? And one of the things that I did was like, I've tried to go back into reading as regularly as I can, right? Like there was a period where I was just you know, constantly reading investigative journalism or, or, you know, whether it was Trump related or just journalism in general. And while that's great, like, don't get me wrong, like there are wonderful news outlets out there that are compiling wonderful journalism on all, on any manner of, you know, different topics. I've read everything from like a long true crime, you know, like long form journalism to like uh, somebody's random narrative about like growing up in Chicago, you know, like you just, you never know like what you can find, you know, online. Mm -hmm. So there's beautiful writing out there. But it's not the same as like, it doesn't give me the, as much as I adore it, it doesn't give me the same joy or pleasure as when I open up a book, right? When I open up a book for the first time. And I've just, I've tried to continue, I've tried to continue reading for for fun and for pleasure because the thing is, that is what made me fascinated in storytelling as a kid. And that's also what made me into a good writer, right? Because part of being a good writer is actually a huge part of being a good writer is you have to read you have to read a lot. You have to read, you know, like as many things as possible. And if you have writers that you love, continue reading their stuff and get recommendations. And, you know, you just, you, there are, there's an endless resource of literature out there that I will never be able to read, you know, <laughs> like, because there's new books being published all the time. And I think that that is an amazing thing. Like that blows my mind when I think about that, right? Like living in the world that we live in, living in, you know, 2022, or, you know, and even before, obviously, because publishing has been huge, you know, for, for, you know, for hundreds of years, it's been essential to like keeping my head on straight, keeping my heart, you know, in the right place. It's, you know, that also reawakened my, my love for writing, writing things that are, well, you know, certainly not journalism related. I'm 30 years old, and I'm going to be 31 in a couple of months. You know, like, that is young. Like, I don't feel, you know, that is young. I want to stress that. I, I know a lot of gay men, I will say this, who they think you hit 30 and your life is over. And that to, <laughs> them, <clears throat> and that to, me, and that to me is bullshit, because I'm so much hotter at 30 than I was at 20. <laughs> Preach! My 30s were my best decade. There you go. There you go. So it's like, you know, I have so much more confidence than I did, you know, when I was 20 years old. It is fabulous being at the peak of my powers. It's been interesting. No, I'm nowhere there's, to the there's, peak. there's some merch. That's for the merch store right Arriving, there. Arriving. Yeah, exactly. There it is. Peak of powers. Arriving at the peak of your powers. Yes. I look forward to having the time to write more fiction, write more poetry, mostly reading at first. And I also want to take on new experiences and I want to travel. I want to see people who I have not seen since before 2019, uh, 2019 or before really, you know, it's it's crazy just how the world has changed in the last couple of years. I really want to see people who I love. Some of them are, you know, here in the United States, others are in Europe and elsewhere. Um, I want to just soak in the world and just exist, you know, for a little bit. And I feel 
very privileged to be able to say that because I work remotely as a broke freelancer. And you know what? I'm okay with being a broke freelancer because I have the freedom to like do what I want with my time right now. And I would be foolish to not, you know, to jump at those opportunities. I have enjoyed- time is a valuable currency, you Absolutely. know, and, it's, and it's, it's spent very fast. So. Absolutely. I, uh, it's a big reason why I've been in no hurry to like get a job, you know, full, a full-time job by that. I mean, you know, um, artists have suffered so much just in general, but in the last few years where people just do not care about us, they do not respect our time. The government ignored artists and their pleas for funding for anything really i have friends who when broadway shut down they you know they lost everything they were eating you know ramen in their crappy little hellish you know apartments in manhattan some of them left to go be with their families you know presumably never to be heard from again because everybody's just so tired like i'm and it's not a joke you know because like it sucks and i feel that way too in you know in journalism because well you know like i said like in my heart i've always been a writer and a performer and everything like that. But in journalism, media is going through a similar reckoning, right? Like there are, we are so underpaid. My first job in media. So I I got a raise. I remember that raise was like a grand total of like $4,000. You know, there are a lot of people though, who are listening to you right now and they're like, like how ungrateful you sound. I mean, because they, they don't understand. They don't understand the value of what artists do. Absolutely. Like it's not just some joke that we sit there. It's like you pour over these all this work, and you're painstakingly editing and writing and creating for the world for people. You guys want content, right? Well, you got to pay people for it, and they no one. You're not asking for a million dollars, but you know, your people don't understand the worth. It's, Absolutely. It's my Absolutely. You know, and it's exhausting. And like, I'm happy that with my former company that we have a good relationship, and I still, you know, freelance you know, for them, but we are all grossly underpaid. Okay. That is a fact. It's like the majority of media companies in New York. There was uh, recently, um, I mean, uh, the people with the New Yorker and people with Vox, you know, they were fighting to unionize, for example, because they were making nothing. And I'm glad that they are out there, you know, advocating for themselves. There are so many things that I would love to be doing with my life, but of course, I have to work because we all have, you know, because we all have bills to pay. And the sure. least, there are some people who go through life. They they think that artists don't offer anything to the world. And, you know, and I think to, and uh, I remember, for example, I went on a date with a guy who fell into the Hudson River. That was a happy day. We were having a discussion at the time about art. And I was talking about how at the time I was going through this Ernest Hemingway phase. And I was just reading a lot of Hemingway and falling in love with just like, I have mixed feelings on some of his work, but like the stuff that works is like, oh, this is beautiful. It's such an example of like how to use sparse language so effectively, right? And to convey so much, like it's it's marvelous, right? So I was talking about this stuff. He had the nerve to be like, well, that's all good, but <laughs> you're never gonna pay your money, you know, pay your bills. You're never gonna have money. You're never gonna like do anything worthwhile with your life. You should like go back into school for like data science or something like that. I was like, okay. And he uh, had gone to, I forget what the hell you study for this. I guess like engineering or something because he was going to be working on an oil rig for like six months out of the year. But he's just like, shitting on people who do really wonderful work. Like, how dare he say that I'm not doing anything in my life? Like, does he not read any literature? What does he not appreciate, you know, art? There are graphic designers, you know, who make the signs that you see on the street. They make, you know, they participate in the web design of the websites that you, you know, go and spend time at, you know, on the internet. 
you know, but I was thinking to myself, wow, he literally, it's, it's like, he's just walking through life. What? Like, let's say he reads a book or watches a movie. Does he just inhale it and then eject it out of his body? Like when he's probably, Mm -hmm. yeah, it just sounds very just like to have such a disposable view of the arts. Like that just really upset me. And when he fell into the Hudson, now wind came, I did not push him. Wind came. But you didn't help him. (laughs) And that did not help. I remember he sort of wobbled and then he fell in and and it brought me great joy. Um, It felt felt like, you know, the good Lord above looking out for me. And and I remember thinking, and the reason why I bring up this story is because I remember thinking to myself, huh, okay, he says that like I'm wasting my time in my life, but I'm going to make it. I'm going to do something. And even if I don't make a lot of money, like I'm going to do important work and it's going to make me happy. And you know what? I am doing important work and it does make me happy. And I do get to use my skills. Like there are people who I know and I know quite a few like wonderful, like including some like very well-off people in high places, you know, who I've worked with. And they all say the same thing, you know, and they say, Alan, you are a wonderful communicator. Alan, you are a wonderful writer. Alan, you know what you're doing, right? And it's like, yes. And you know what? I may not have much money right now, but I am a hell of a networker. I'm a hell of a networker. And that is what those, uh, you know, those communication skills, those interpersonal skills, that is what got me through this pandemic. Because when the pandemic hit, like so many artists, so many writers, performers, I lost work. Okay, I had work, it canceled. I've also edited books, like I've edited fiction, for example, including some young adult novels and some other stuff. And work just got canceled because people were, uh, they either lost income themselves or they were super depressed because the world shut down and they weren't going to do anything. And I don't blame them. I remember I just picked up the phone and I just called a couple of people and I was like, I need help. Like, do you know, where can you send me? Like what, you know, send me something. So people were just sending me work like in a matter of hours, right? And within like 48, 72 hours, I had a, you know, I had a job. I had a, just like a steady freelance gig and I got another one and I've just continued to like pay my bills that way. And the social edge, which I had been, you know, writing for, you know, for a long time, even after I left, because we have a very good relationship. Um, they offered me more work, you know, uh, I think, uh, over the summer, which was very nice to hear. Um, and it's been great. My, you know, my, my bills are paid. My rent is cheap. I live alone. I am one of those people who is lucky to live alone in New York with the world's most amazing landlords who charge him like practically nothing for rent. And it's like, when you have a place like that, you hold on to that for dear life. So Mm -hmm. I have been comfortable, relatively speaking. I am still not paid what I am worth. I have never been paid what I am worth. And as God is my witness, I will continue to advocate for that. You know, once I am ready to, you know, like jump back into job hunting and everything, once I get the the traveling and the writing and stuff like that, once I spend more time focusing on the projects that bring me joy, right? Like this novel that I've been working on since 2013, then, you know, I will see about making progress, you know, on the job hunt. So with all of this, do you, when you look back at writing, do you, and you look back at all these years and still all these issues, and do you have any deep regrets? Do you, did you miss out on anything? Would you go back and say, oh, you know what, I, I should have just gone full academia at 15 and 17. This play isn't, 
this play isn't good. I'm like, and you know, do you regret this path? Don't don't talk about the fallen that way. The fallen, the fallen <laughs> is going to be it, darling. I'm, I believe you. It's good. Pulitzer ready. We are going to do the fallen. Let's go. <laughs> the fallen walked, so my current play that is nowhere near finished could run. Okay, so reach, reach. <laughs> In terms of regrets, well, you know, and I'll get, I'll totally get. You know, thank you guys again for like having me here. And I appreciate that we can just have an open dialogue, you know, about all these things, you know, like I said, including things like salary transparency and whatnot. Um, And one of the other things that uh, to get into your question to answering it, one of the other things that I'm glad about is like, not only is there a nationwide conversation about like, paying people what they're worth, like, I'm, you know, we hear all this talk about the labor shortage and all this crap. It's like, no, pay people more, pay people more, they need to pay their bills, they need to eat. But one of the other things I'm very happy about is that there has been a proper, uh, this doesn't, hasn't necessarily translated into more compassionate policy, but I'm happy that there is a stronger conversation about mental illness. I dropped out of college years ago um, because I was dealing with undiagnosed bipolar disorder at the time. I struggled a lot, like all my life, you know, all my life. And if I had to, uh, I don't regret, I, I know like I eventually got treatment and I've been doing remarkably well and it's been great, right? So I don't want to say that like, oh, I wasted all that time, you know, part of be, you know, part of uh, dealing with these mental health issues was that sometimes I didn't make the best choices. So I did burn, you know, a few bridges and I did like break off opportunities. I self-sabotaged, you know, a few times, mm-hmm. right? As we all do, as yeah. everybody does. Yeah, yeah. You know, and all I can do is look, and I'm still like, I'm still friendly with a few journalists who I, one gave me an opportunity to big application at a, sorry, at a big um, publication, I should say. I messed it up because I was just, I was not well. I was having a manic phase at the time. Like it was not a good time. And you weren't aware yet. I wasn't aware yet. No, like I always knew I had a problem and I always knew that like, oh God, this is, this is like bipolar disorder, isn't it? But there is something to be said about how hard it is to like, own up to that and admit that and like go get help. It is so hard and people should not judge because everybody's on their own, you know, timeline with this stuff. It's very, you know, it's remarkably difficult, especially in a country where with um with so few resources. It's just like having any other like ailment. Exactly. But because it's in the brain, people treat it like with a stigma. It's um this this journalist, I'm still good friends with her and everything. And like there was no no ill will. Like, I think everybody understood. Like, I, I've worked with some really just wonderful, kind, understanding people, um, in my eyes, maybe even forgiving, you know, pe- people. But no, I think that, like, everybody understands, you know, that, like, it has been a hard time. When I finally got treatment, like, I received a lovely phone call from the chairwoman of my organization, the Association of Foreign Correspondents. And she was like, you are valued. Like, we adore you on the board, you know. And, like, she said, I'm so happy that like you are thriving and it's just like it really makes me feel like you know what i messed up a few things you know like further back things are good you know things are good and people do see they do see when a you know that you're trying your best they respect that you know and they and they respect somebody who is just able to be open and to be upfront about their issues and i've always tried you know to be honest and upfront about these issues with in terms of like other regrets isn't so much a regret in terms of um, I don't regret doing this, but I can tell you that I've accepted it at this point. Another reason why artists suffer, you know, and uh, is because of all the gatekeeping, right? There's so much gatekeeping just in the arts, in the media fields. And I was I had a few different encounters with people who were offering me quite a few different opportunities, but only if I slept with them. 
And, you know, and the thing is, like, and I look back on, like, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you speak up about it? And I've spoken up about it more. You know, it's like, why didn't you? And it's like, well, I was dealing with my mental health issues. Not which, predator, which predators know that. They can sense these things from people. They do. You know, and, they, and they believe that artists, I think with artists, too, I think people feel they can do these things because you use the word dignity. They're shocked that they come across an artist with dignity. They're like, as if we don't have any. Like, we have it. Thank you. You're just trying to keep stealing it from us. Well, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was dealing with those issues. And I also, I didn't think anybody would believe me or respect me, you know, if I came forward. And that's, and that's the messed up thing, right? Because it's like, you're going up against a powerful man. I remember when I said no, and he said, you're making a grave mistake, you know? And it's like, oh, I see. You want me to, you expect me to sell myself out. But the thing is, I will not, because that would have given this person leverage over me, over my career. And I would never feel safe. I would never feel safe. I would never feel if I had done that, I would never have felt like I could properly advocate for myself. And I've told this story to people and they say, oh, my God, that sucks. That must have been so horrible. I'm like, I really don't see much difference. Like it would have hurt me if I had gone ahead with it. And it hurt me regardless. Right? Hurt me regardless. I don't want to say it is what it is, um, you know, in the larger sense. But like with my life, at least like with this incident. Right. Like I have accepted that it happened. And I have, of course, you know, you know, and I have, of course, moved on and I'm in a much better space, you know, mentally and emotionally, but I will never stop. I will never stop talking about how wrong that is and how that hurts journalists and hurts artists. It hurts anybody in a field that is dependent on other people's patronage. And it shouldn't be dependent. Yeah, it shouldn't be dependent, you know, on other people's patronage. I have lots of problems with, uh, you know, with uh, the commodification of art, you know, and how, again, we are just so dependent on on other people's patronage. It's like, just pay us properly. You know, like, I can you imagine wonders people would create if they didn't have to worry about, you know, like keeping a roof over their head? It's astonishing to me. Friends of mine who worked on Broadway, you know, like they were making $300 a week dancing on a Broadway stage, dancing on a Broadway stage. And the union, you know, not backing them and not defending them. Friends who didn't qualify for COVID aid because even though they were in in performing in shows on Broadway, they were still technically in previews and didn't actually open before the shutdown. So they didn't qualify for anything, you know, no back pay, no pandemic, you know, relief, nothing from the government. And I am proud to I'm proud to just be an advocate alongside so many other people who are absolutely advocating, you know, for themselves and for other people because something needs to change. It absolutely needs. We need we need like hundreds and hundreds of you. (laughs) <laughs> like out there in the world doing this. I think you're gonna be one of the people who who helped to change this world of what we're living in right now. Yeah, absolutely. And Alan, thank you um, for your time and for your conversation and for your mind. Um, we appreciate it so much. As we break, is there anything, and of course we, we you know, we, we want artists to celebrate their own work. Is there anything you want to promote? Any links, any social media pages, any place where people can find you and read and more you. that you write? Well, I highly recommend uh, anybody listening, they should check out foreignpress.org, the site that I manage. Like I said, I am the media platform manager for the site. And we've just been doing lots of very important coverage on, you know, like I said, on press freedom and misinformation. And I recently, um, just to toot my own horn on, you know, some work that I did recently, I recently um, interviewed the legal team for Leonard Peltier, who is a um, an indigenous activist who has been a political prisoner of the United States government for 47 years. I am very proud of that interview. I feel incredibly honored, you know, that I had the opportunity 
to listen um, to Leonard's story. And it's something that I really think more people should read. And um, are you freelancing as an editor? Can people hire you? Do you put yourself out there? Do you want to? Or They absolutely can. I have edited books. Um, I have edited, you know, people's essays, uh, articles, uh, all sorts of things. So yes, I am definitely around and uh, I could always be contacted by email. So you could always reach out to me there. Fabulous. Amen. Well, thank you, Alan. This was lovely and illuminating. And thank you so much again. And we'll bring you back after we've been yeah, doing this like for a while. We could do a whole series on just Alan and his activism and all the th- I, You Really, this, this has been a lot of eye-opening. And I appreciate you so much for sharing and putting yourself out here and your vulnerability. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. And we'll talk soon. We'll see you soon. Right, Tom? Yes, we'll see you soon, everyone. Have a good week. Thanks so much for listening to The Unusual Creatures. We love telling the stories of these creatives, and we hope you love listening to them. You know the drill. Subscribe where you love listening to pods. Send links to your friends and tell everyone you know about this show. And I mean everyone. Counting the minutes until we meet again. And keep being unusual creatures. Unusual Creatures.